and welcome to the ZSL World Science Podcast. My name is Charlotte Coles and I'm standing in for your regular host, Dr. Moni Bohm. I'm secretly quite glad she can't be here this evening because it means that I have the chance to interview several researchers about a subject that fascinates me, the relationship between wildlife and people. In this episode, we're going to be discussing our relationship with nature and examples of both conflict and coexistence, focusing on how we can find better ways to live with wildlife. To help me, I'm joined by researcher Agnese Marino. Agnese, you're in the final months of completing your PhD at the Institute of Zoology here at the Zoological Society of London, so I really appreciate you finding the time to to speak to me. It's a pleasure. (laughs) Tell me, what's the focus of your PhD? So my PhD is on coexistence with large carnivores in the northwest of Spain, and it's a mountainous area where people have always coexisted with wolves and bears. And my research is directed at understanding how groups of resource users relate to the environment and how they value the environment. The data that I use is mostly based on interviews that I did with farmers and hunters across several different sites. And then I also kind of look at the history of the area quite in depth. So I use ethnographic texts and historical texts from the area. Wow, sounds really interesting. What have you learned so far about coexistence from your study site? I think what I learned about coexistence is is how local people define coexistence, which I think is quite different from the typical conservationist ideal type of coexistence. It's a kind of coexistence that involves population control. So historically, people had always been able to retaliate to damages. So when wolves preyed on livestock or when bears preyed on beehives, they had, in a sense, traditional ways that they have always defended their livestock. So they used to use collectivized systems of livestock herding. There's a local breed of a livestock guarding dog, and there's ancient structures to protect beehives. But now, of course, population control is much more regulated. So bears are completely protected in Spain because the population is very small, whereas wolves are either culled or they are hunted. And so a large part of my thesis is about looking at how policy interacts with local narratives of coexistence and how it shapes them or how um, kind of local narratives resist policy changes. So have these changes, changes in in policy, changes in how these species are, are regulated, that's very much impacted on this historical coexistence in the region. Yes, it has in so many ways that it's quite difficult to know whether it's been a positive or a negative impact. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't have data about you know people's attitudes before. We know that bear populations and wolf populations have expanded and increased, and that is likely due in part to protection policies, in part to a larger abandonment of rural areas and a kind forest regeneration and so in terms of attitude what I've learned is that it's first of all very important to listen and try and understand what coexistence means and how it's defined on the ground and then base any conservation initiatives that you might want on engaging with local customs and local traditions Mm -hmm. because laws 
are not necessarily respected if they are not accepted. And so imposing laws in a top-down way doesn't really have a, a positive conservation outcome. So so important to understand all of these factors um, when considering how we ensure that, that wildlife and people do coexist and are able to coexist yeah. successfully. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're joined by a host of different experts for today's podcast, including one of your PhD supervisors, Agnese, Dr. Sarah Durant. Sarah is a senior research fellow at ZSL with over 25 years of experience working in sub-Saharan Africa. Among other things, her research focuses include carnivore conservation and human-wildlife conflict, working to develop approaches to improve coexistence between people and large carnivores. So thank you for joining us, Sarah. Can you explain what we mean by the term human-wildlife conflict and how widespread the issue is? So generally, um, what's understood by human-wildlife conflict are issues that bring people into conflict with wildlife. And most conflict occurs over things like loss of crops, um, loss of livestock. Those tend to dominate the conflict situations that are reported on. But there can be things like zoonosis, some disease. There can be other factors that can actually cause conflict as well. But the majority of conflicts, as we understand them, are generated by conflicts because a wildlife species like an elephant might go and destroy crops or a large carnivore such as a lion or a cheetah might come in and take a cow or a goat. What other drivers of conflict have you, have you seen in your experience? Or? We understand conflict as quite a simple structure. You lose your goat, that causes your resentment and retaliation against the wildlife and that might result in you taking action against the wildlife. But actually it's much more complex than that superficial loss of livestock. And there's a lot of underlying drivers of conflict that contribute to the conflict and exacerbate the conflict. So for example, autonomy over your land, over your livestock, and feeling that the wildlife belongs to the government and it's the government's animals that are killing or affecting your livelihoods. And that underlying impression that this is not my wildlife, it's the government's wildlife, actually means that any conflict situation you go into is exacerbated because you've got all that underlying baggage that you're bringing into the conflict situation. And different areas will have different underlying causes and contributing factors to conflict. And you really need to understand the community and the issues it's facing and the context to actually really understand those underlying drivers of conflict. How has this understanding of human-wildlife conflict changed the way that we do conservation? So our understanding of the drivers of conflict are beginning to change the way we do conservation. I think there's still quite a lot of simplistic approaches to conflict where people think that, for example, for large carnivores, you just compensate for the loss of a cow and that will remove the conflict. But more and more studies are showing that actually it doesn't remove the conflict because you've got these underlying drivers. So you might still have the conflict there, even if you've actually paid the cost of the cow. And as we look more and more into these situations, we find that this complexity 
really needs to be understood to build effective solutions to the conflict. And just these simplistic approaches don't work and can even sometimes make conflicts worse. We're at the beginning of that journey of actually building a more in-depth understanding of conflict and getting better information and science around conflict situations that help us really understand how to more holistically manage the conflict. And I think a core part of that is actually trying to develop new ways for people and communities to receive benefits from the presence of wildlife. Because at the moment, wildlife tends to be a net cost except for a few areas where you might have ecotourism or wildlife tourism. We need to think laterally and actually try and think more about how we can deliver benefits into those communities that pay the cost. A lot of what we're talking about during this podcast are issues that inherently are linked to human activity, and yet they're often having to be addressed by animal-focused conservation organisations. What do you think the challenges are for these organisations in in having to address something that is so much about humans? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because most people who go into conservation, go into the conservation sector, they go into it because they love wildlife and they love animals. But actually, conservation is all about people. There's very little actually that's purely about wildlife so you end up with people who gradually and I'm one of them who gradually comes to the realization that actually um, if you really want to have an impact in conservation you really have to work with people and people are the cause of a lot of problems that wildlife face around the world but they're also the solution as well and they're key to any solutions you can have in terms of positive conservation having conservation results. Is there still a long way to go and a lot of changes to be made to the traditional conservation approach? Yeah, I think we need to change the way we think about wildlife and living with wildlife. Historically, there's been this fortress approach to conservation with this emphasis on protected areas and keeping people separate to wildlife. And to a certain extent, some protected areas and some approach to to conservation in that way is needed because there are some species that really need these core areas where they're free from the impact of people. But I think we have to go beyond that and think more about humans as part of the ecosystem and not separate to the ecosystem and start thinking about ways where we can live alongside wildlife outside and adjacent to protected areas where people can actually gain benefits from living alongside wildlife and not just end up paying costs. And until we can get that paradigm shift, I think it's going to be very difficult to deal with conflict. You're actually better off with the wildlife present than with them absence, and that's where we need to go, but we're not there yet. My worry is that unless we can get there quickly, we might lose quite a lot of the large charismatic megafauna. We're facing a crucial period in in some regions of the world. So it's important we act quickly but also change the way we're... Yes, it's important that we act quickly and it's important that we find ways to translate that global value that the people around the world afford this wildlife into real meaningful solutions for the people on the ground to actually have to live alongside these animals. Thank you very much, Sarah.
Understanding issues that involve both people and wildlife requires an interdisciplinary approach and one where the social sciences play a big role. Our next guest is Dr Jerome Lewis, an anthropologist from University College London and co-director of the Extreme Citizen Science Research Group. Jerome, what does the field of anthropology contribute to the study of human-wildlife relations? Well, it contributes in ways which, well, in many different ways. Um, we study them, which is already a, a major contribution, understanding how different people around the world uh, engage and maintain, manage and otherwise treat the other species that they share their environments with. But we also look at different ways of approaching it from a theoretical point of view. And perhaps of interest to people involved in conservation is a recent move which largely began in the Amazon and with anthropologists studying people uh, living in the Amazon to what we call multi-species anthropology. So it's an anthropology which tries to look at not just humans as key actors in networks of relationships, but also other species. And this can provide a very interesting insight into the multiple and varied ways that human groups have created relationships with the species with whom they share their environments. So your research is based in Central Africa, studying hunter-gatherer societies. What have you learned about the way that they relate to nature and how they engage in conservation practices? So firstly, conservation, I think, is a rather limited term for describing what they do in the forest that they inhabit. And they have inhabited for many tens of thousands of years. So the sorts of uh, relationships that they have with the other species that they share this space with are really well-worn and very well-established and have found a, a, a very comfortable space where of mutual flourishing. And even though they may do things which, from a formal Western conservation point of view, would be considered non-conservationist, for instance, elephant hunting, actually, uh, on the scale and in the way that they do these activities, they are very conservationist. So, um, for instance, when elephant hunting, what people will go for are large males. And, and in general, when people hunt, they, they seek out large males because they offer the best rewards for people's work. But at the same time, that acts as a thinning, which uh, opens up resources for juniors, juveniles of those species, and for females. And there's a, a, a very strong effort to avoid killing pregnant females of any species. And these obviously have conservation impacts on those species' populations. However, um, I would push it further. I, I would say they're not just conserving, they are enhancing their environments. And there are a number of ways that they do this. So, for instance, wild yams are a really important food for all the mammals living in the forest, or the large mammals. And uh, whenever hunter-gatherers collect wild yams, they always put the stalk back in the ground. Uh, and what that does is it effectively creates the opportunity for those yam patches, as they're called, to spread and become stronger. So that when the hunter-gatherer returns in six or nine months' time, they'll find new yams there. But of course, all the other species that enjoy wild yams will also find more yams there. And so when you think of inhabiting a space for probably around 50,000 years, that kind of constant action will have a very enriching effect on the resources available to mammals in that forest. Have there been conservation interventions from the outside and how have they impacted on the societies that you work with and on their relationship with nature? 
Well, this is a very interesting question, and a protected area has been uh, imposed on this part of the forest and, uh, and a buffer zone around that protected area. The protected area effectively evicted a large number of hunter-gatherers from forests that they very normally moved through. Um, but because their use of the forest is invisible to those who don't know what the signs are, they don't cut down forests, they just make their camps under the canopy, they don't have farms and so on. So the conservationists claim that there was nobody in the forest, but of course if you talk to the hunter-gatherers it's quite a different story and they're very upset and resentful about this occupation of their traditional lands. But you know that, in a sense, can be managed because there's a large area of forest and people are able to go to other parts of the forest. But what really has become a huge problem in recent years is the way that the concentration of road building and other ways for accessing the forest have developed around that protected area and in some senses justified by the protected area has created a huge influx of outsiders and particularly commercial poachers and commercial elephant poachers. They end up harassing local communities and this has created a sort of terror among the hunter-gatherers which is very serious. People are very reluctant now to go into the forest. As a result, young people aren't learning these very sophisticated skills that they need in order to interact with the other animals. They are becoming impoverished and in the process of losing access to resources they become much more vulnerable to coercion to participate in the very activities that are causing them such trouble. And the situation is really spiralling into a very negative scenario as far as I can see. We are, of course, making efforts in collaboration with the conservation organisations to try and address some of these issues. But unfortunately, the extent to which corruption dominates the real practices of people on the ground mean that despite very serious and hard efforts that we've made over the years, they've been largely unsuccessful in addressing these problems. I introduced you earlier as co-director of the Extreme Citizen Science Research Group. Mm. For anyone who's not sure, what exactly is citizen science? So citizen science is something which was the way science evolved in pre-1930s Europe, in effect, and America, in that it was normal people who were just interested in observing the world around them who would start to observe it in very different ways and slowly collate their observations, test their hypotheses based on those observations and come up with deeper understandings of the nature and workings of the world. With the professionalization of science from particularly the 1950s onwards, it became much less common for ordinary people to engage in scientific research. However, one area in which it did continue and which it's remained very strong is in nature observations. Mm. Bird watching is, is a particularly strong example. Weather is another very strong example where in order to uh, get sufficient numbers of observations to have scientifically valid data, it required recruiting many ordinary people to just observe systematically what was going on around them. And so citizen science in its modern form, it emerged in the, in the sort of 1990s in much more formally organised collaborations between citizens of different countries and scientists with various research questions that they're trying to investigate. And it's something which is becoming much more in relation to conservation of a way of engaging people in their natural environment. At the Extreme Citizen Science Group, the reason we call ourselves extreme is because we try and bring the tools of science not just to the most marginalised people on Earth who tend to be groups 
groups like these hunter-gatherers living in very remote parts of the forest, but also to women, to people who have not been educated formally in schools, but have lots of natural education about the environment they inhabit, and to make tools and methods available to them for them to capitalise on this knowledge and share it with scientists and other people who are interested. And so the extreme is people in extreme places, but it's also about assuring that the tools can reach anybody regardless of their gender or educational background. Mm. And how can citizen science like this then facilitate a shift in our understanding and behaviour towards other animals, non-human species? One of the things that we've observed when people do citizen science is that in the process of doing citizen science they will observe more carefully what's going on around them. And with the observation, especially if it's on a specific species or a specific complex of species interacting together, the more they observe, the more that they notice about those species, the more they learn about their interactions, the more they care about them. And this just seems to be a natural phenomenon that people go through as they observe nature. The more you watch something, the more you learn about it, the more you care for it. And, and so this is something that we think is a very important process to capitalise on more systematically for conservation because protected area conservation simply is not going to respond adequately to the drama of climate change that the 21st century is facing. And we have to recruit everybody into a global action for supporting multi-species flourishing. Citizen science offers one very potent tool for addressing questions around the natural environment from pollution to species abundance to monitoring changes in temperature and weather patterns and so on. So that growing understanding that, that hopefully people develop through citizen science projects and in turn that interest and, and empathy for, for the natural world, hopefully that then leads to sort of a more successful coexistence of humans and, and other species. So participation and community engagement are words that are often used in conservation discourse. What differentiates meaningful participation from participation rhetoric in your view? Well, in the context of conservation, there's a very elitist view by university-educated conservationists about what constitutes conservation. You know, if you are an anthropologist and you spend a lot of time looking at the way that various groups around the world understand their relations with other species, you see that we actually have a, a very culturally biased view of conservation. So, for instance, in my experience in Central Africa, conservationists are much more likely to partner up in meaningful ways with large industrial concerns like forestry companies than they are with local people. What tends to happen is that conservationists arrive with a set agenda of what people need to participate in. And once they arrive there, they browbeat people into that kind of participation, as opposed to sitting down and listening and really attending to how that local group understands the flourishing of their multi-species relations that they depend on. And almost every group who really are engaged in their environment through constant attention, whether it's through farming, small-scale farming, or whether it's through hunting and gathering, and often all three in combination, will have very sophisticated understandings of multi-species relations. 
but they nonetheless should first be understood so that the conversation between the conservationists and the local people can happen with understanding, and that currently isn't happening. So, for instance, in Central Africa, a very good example of this miscommunication is that the hunter-gatherers value the environment because it is abundant. When conservation discourse is all geared towards valuing things because they are scarce, I, this is a protected species, we have to take great care of it because it's, 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 it's rare. It doesn't make sense to local people because, for instance, there are elephants all around in the forest. They see their traces, they hear them at night. They know the elephants are there. So when someone comes and says, you mustn't kill elephants because they're a, a rare protected species, they immediately become suspicious because it doesn't match with their own understanding of what's going on in that local environment. They value elephants because they're abundant. And what that means is you need to treat elephants very carefully in order to ensure they remain abundant. That suddenly becomes a huge pathway in for mutual collaboration. That's how you, you manage these things. Well, thank you so much, Jerome. That was food for thought. From experiences in Central Africa to closer to home now, our final guest today is Diana Pound, the Managing Director of Dialogue Matters, a UK-based company which she set up in 2000. Diana, you've designed and facilitated over 100 stakeholder dialogue processes and trained over 2,000 people on consensus building. What is consensus building? So I think of consensus building as a process which enables people with very different views, interests, knowledge types, traditions, to come together and find what they can agree about. And that makes it sound quite simple, but there's so many principles and ethics and ways of crafting questions and facilitating group dynamics that enables people to shift their behaviour from being very adversarial, going win-lose, trying to dominate and push their view at the cost of other interests, and shifting from that to being more open-minded, sharing different types of knowledge and information, uh, learning about each other's interests, generating ideas and solutions, working on which of those looks like it has most merit and will deliver most benefit, gradually developing those ideas further, testing them to make sure that they're legally fine, technically possible, socially acceptable, and gradually getting to the solutions that deliver as much benefit as they can for as many of the interests that are involved. And of the processes that we've designed that have been full consensus building processes, you get to outcomes where everybody is sensed to the way forward. So some people will very enthusiastically support it and others will say, do you know what, having explored all other issues, all information, all options, mm. we accept that this is the one that is going to deliver most benefit and it may not be our preferred solution when we came into this negotiation but at this point we would accept that as as the optimum way forward mm-hmm. and then people move beyond the idea and the solution to start working out action and implementation of whatever it is they've agreed. So you were brought in to design and facilitate a consensus building process at the Hatfield Forest in the UK. What was the issue that you were trying to address? Yeah, so we were brought in as a neutral third party to help the different people who had very different views about the future of Hatfield Forest come together and find some solutions. 
And the challenge that they were addressing is that Hatfield's a very precious and loved place. It's owned and managed by the National Trust, but it's protected for its habitats and it's also got great cultural and heritage values. But the very love for the forest had become the problem because visits uh, about 10 years ago were 100,000 and now, uh, about two years ago, the estimate was that it had gone up to 500,000. And the forest just can't take that people pressure So as a result, a lot of the rides, that sort of large, wide, grassy, traditional pathways through the forest, were becoming completely muddy and squishy and quagmired and just really damaged. And that had two effects. One, it was really impacting the habitats that were of importance. So a lot of what was really valued, the wildlife and species there, were in the edges of the ride, in that zone between the the woodland and the, the more open routes. So that was all just getting trampled. And then the people who were going there were just coming back covered in mud and their dogs covered in mud and their kids sort of squishing around. So nothing was winning. I mean, it was bad for people and it was bad for nature. And the National Trust had decided the solution was to close some of the routes. But in doing that, they made that decision by themselves and it provoked huge hostility and fury from the local community with members of the National Trust staff feeling uncomfortable to be out sometimes in the woodland because they would get shouted at and unpleasant letters and phone calls and then of course the local community were feeling completely not listened to and disempowered and like this place they loved so much they couldn't go and enjoy anymore. The whole situation was escalating and getting worse, and that wasn't helping either the nature or the people. So the National Trust asked us to come in and design a consensus process, which involved a balance of people with very different interests, but including some of the key protagonists from the local community. And through applying our best practice principles and ethics, we designed a process that enabled people to explore the issues, find what they could agree about, and find some ways forward and the National Trust were very supportive of us delivering the best practice that we could. And best practice is that you don't just stop at the negotiation, but you have to put in place some more collaborative management going forward. So very unusually for the National Trust, they're pioneering, with our initial guidance and mentoring, a working group that the stakeholders, which included the National Trust, said who they thought ought to be on that working group. And that working group is helping the more detailed application and delivery of the solutions that the bigger group have agreed to and so it's been a great success and it continues and the case we did has won awards too which is very pleasing. How long was the mediation process that you were involved in? I think if you take it from the moment that we were contracted to the setting up of the working group it was probably about seven or eight months So when you know how to design these negotiations, you know the steps and stages to do, they can actually be quite swift. When you think that it was a complete breakdown between the community, other stakeholders and the National Trust, and then six, seven months later, we've got to agreement setting up a working group and real clarity about the well-supported way forward. And interestingly, through the process, the National Trust, I mean, this, this always tells us it was genuine and it really worked, because the National Trust had had some sort of preferred ideas they thought were best but then through dialogue and discussion with other people they realised they weren't going to work so well and they weren't going to be very acceptable. Some of the people who had come in saying they would under no circumstances accept path closures and route closures became to understand much more about why they were happening and why they were needed and accepted 
that actually that did need to happen. Then the discussion was about, well, if there were path closures, how could that be better communicated? How could there still be circular routes? How could they make sure that all the routes attached to a particular local community weren't closed at the same time? So that, okay, we accept that path closures is a solution that needs to happen here, but we've got to go about it in a much better way. And the National Trust agreed with that, and that was part of what the working group was helping. And there were about five other solutions they came up with as well. Fantastic. It's really nice to hear how through that process there was then a successful outcome, but also how they're embedding, I guess, that way of working going forward as well. Yeah, and we've even done some more work since. One of the ideas, one of the issues, is that there's massive house building in this area. And the house builders are saying, you know, instead of us having to factor in sort of green space in our new housing development, people can go to Hatfield Forest. So they're trying to get through planning by ticking that Hatfield is providing something that really they ought to be providing. And so one of the agreements was that there needs to be real pushback into the planning system and the developers that, you know, you do need to produce areas and create areas of, of natural green space near these new housing zones. So last autumn we did some brilliantly fun work with young people where the young people were saying what it is they get from Hatfield Forest that is unique to Hatfield Forest. It's only an ancient forest experience they could have. But what they would love to have nearer to home in natural green spaces nearer where they live and what they would like to do there and how they would enjoy it. And we helped them express that, first of all, in some sort of discussion sessions we held with them where they were drawing diagrams about what they would like and we were quizzing them a bit about what their views were. But then, having done that for us, we opened up the opportunity for them to express their views the way they wanted to. And they created songs and poems and Play-Doh sculptures and raps and little dramas and expressed their views in, in these very some of them very poignant, some of them very moving ways. So that was one of the solutions that people wanted and then we were privileged to be able to help them to do it. And that's been packaged up by the National Trust and now they've got some evidence to push back at developers and say, look, this is what young people need nearer. Here's some things you should be providing for them. And, you know, that's really exciting that the young people were really getting a voice and getting a say and getting to influence something. They felt that they were making a contribution that will benefit future young people. Given your experience of working on various different cases, what is the most challenging aspect of bringing people together? I think this is going to be an unusual answer, actually, but for us, the most challenging thing, it's not working with people live in workshops where we can have to facilitate and help manage some really, really challenging and tricky behaviour until people start sort of realising how it works and and collaborating and building trust in each other. The thing for us that we got from Hatfield but we don't always get was the trust of the people commissioning us to do the work. So actually organisations that want to commission a process, they bring us in as third parties but then try and control us or the process. They still find it hard to let go or they still want that the outcome is only determined by science. Mm. And of course solutions need multiple different types of knowledge. Science is of course important but it's not the only way of understanding whether something is acceptable and viable and you know is going to work. So for us that's our challenge is, is the trust of the people commissioning us to be there, oddly. That's such an interesting answer. (laughs) (laughs) Unexpected. (laughs) What's the most surprising solution that you've come across? Well, I love it when we're in a process where you get real win-wins. 
So we're always helping people negotiate to solutions that increase the win for all parties. I mean, there was one example where there was a new channel going to be cut through for flood management reasons, and it was going to cut through two lakes. And one lake was really important for carp fishery, and the other lake was really important for sailing. You know, whichever way was going to massively disadvantage one or other group. And then through helping people really wrestle with this issue and try and come up with solutions. And in consensus building, it's not like he who's most powerful wins or the the most support for something wins. If there's somebody saying, no, this is still really difficult for us, then in a consensus building process, you turn back to the whole group and you say, okay, you've all understood now what the concerns are for this person. So everybody's got to see if they can come up with an innovation or a solution that will help you all move forward. During that process, the solution came up that somebody said, well, what if we moved the facilities, so the sailing club and the ramp and so on, to the far side of where the bund was going to be? And then the sailing people said, yes, but then we wouldn't have enough lake to do our sailing in. So what about that the carp fishery open up their lake for sailing? So in return for accepting the bund that will benefit the carp fishing, the carp fishing lake is then opened up to sailing as well and you get double the area to sail in. And then the carp fishing people said, well, hang on a minute, if that's a solution, if the sailing club would allow us to fish in their lake, we would help keep the vegetation down. And the sailing club said, well, that would be great, because if you could help us keep the vegetation down, it's actually better for our sailing. So suddenly we went flip from something that looked intractable and looked like you, you couldn't see how there could be a solution. And suddenly we got something quite you know favorable to both parties and it's bringing enhanced benefit to both parties it just shows how the process opens up opportunities for people to think differently and suddenly you start finding solutions nobody could see at the outset what is the role of science in consensus building well i'm simultaneously passionate about science and irritated with scientists you know good evidence is crucial decision making and if that good evidence is coming from a science way of understanding the world then the best available knowledge needs to be shared but science isn't the only way of understanding we know scientists have gone in with solutions that they thought were absolutely the right answer for a situation and then crunched up against belief systems or traditions or practicalities of markets or of the way communities function that mean their science solution couldn't work at all. So I'm all for really good science, but I also think that needs to be put into a picture with all sorts of other knowledge as well. As a challenge, I'm an IUCN commissioner that the greatest threat to biodiversity conservation outside of climate change and sea level rise, so outside of those major locked-in changes, is the attitude of nature conservationists. Powerful final thought. Thank you so much, Diana. Agnese, we've heard some really interesting viewpoints and case studies this evening, but what key message really stands out for you? I think something that ties all of the interviews that we've had Mm -hmm. is the idea that in order to live in a more healthy and biodiverse environment, we need to change the way that we think about conservation and the way that we do conservation and also the way that we define conservation.
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Agnese, for joining me and good luck with your studies as well. You're nearly there. And thank you, listeners, too, for, for joining us. Look out for the next edition of the ZSL Wild Science Podcast when Moni will be back. But for now, from me and Agnese, goodbye. <laughs>